Saying low, Apple Music. Hi. Hey. Hello. What's up? Hello. How does one start a podcast in 2020 when there's so many ways to say hello now right here on Apple Podcasts? Let me just start. Hey, it's Zane. Thanks for joining me once again for another conversation right here on my interview series. Catching up with Rick Rubin. This term arguably gets used a lot. It sort of gives you air cover if you're saying something that you think might land a little too heavy and you can say, arguably the greatest football player to ever play the game or arguably the greatest music producer of the last 40 years. Well, that depends, right? What's the criteria? Let's take a look at it. How the records sound is probably number one. Do they come out feeling like an authentic representation of the artist at that moment in time? And did the producer play a pivotal role in helping the artist realize that vision? That's definitely on the list. How do the artists feel about the producer after the fact? And is it shown by the fact that they come back and work with the producer again and again? Yep, that's going to be on the list for sure. Do they go above and beyond the recording experience and that moment and show love for the artist, breathe life into their legacy in lots of different ways? Have they invested in an environment in which artists can go and record a safe space, a trusted space, a beautiful space? As they're going through making record for record, are they presenting themselves to some degree as a historian for great art? Do they have a broad enough passion for music to work in multiple genres, to be able to go from hip hop to country music, to hard rock, heavy metal, R&B, singer-songwriters, songwriters yeah if you could tick that box you're on the list okay so that's just me making up some kind of like really vague criteria about how you would get past the term arguably and get into a decision of who's the greatest music producer of the last 30 40 years you know where i'm going with this there are a lot of incredible music producers that tick almost all those boxes but to my mind there's only one who ticks every single one and his name is rick rubin I've kind of said it all really, the rest is up to him. As we dive into an album in an era that is particularly important to all of us as music fans, but also to Rick, with Tom Petty sadly no longer around to tell his own story about why Wildflowers is coming out with 10 additional songs and why he wanted it to be in that shape in the first place, it is left to Rick Rubin to help tell that story. The seminal moment for Tom Petty at a very important time in his life has lived with us now for more than two decades, and it remains, as far as many Tom Petty fans are concerned, arguably the seminal Tom Petty album. So thanks for coming back. You picked the right conversation. Myself and Rick Rubin talking about Tom Petty and the creation of Wildflowers and his impact not only on our lives, but on the lives of Rick Rubin as well. A beautiful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Rick Rubin, man, adventurer, producer of records, Rider of paddle boards, creator of ergonomic and insanely comfortable footwear. How are you, man? What's happening, man? I was just getting reacquainted with an old friend, just like you have been. I was just kind of going through the day, just listening to songs I know and love from an album called Wildflowers and listening to new songs I didn't know I loved from all the rest. And uh, you got me settled on one of my favorites, which was time to move on. And I'm learning a lot about this record, you know, since you guys have, have all decided to come together to, to see Tom's vision through to its completion, in its completion. <laughs> so I'm really thrilled we get a chance to talk about it. How have you been? Everything's great. How about you? Doing really good. Doing really good. I guess my first question, Rick, is um, you don't seem to be somebody, at least to, to, to my memory, who likes to revise what you've done in that regard. You know, um, and yet we find yourself going back and lovingly listening to this record again and and creating this extended track listing. How was that experience for you, given that it's probably not a natural thing for you to do? Well, I can remember when Tom called me and said, I want to come over and play you something. Uh, I said, okay. And he came over and he played me 
a version of all of the rest, the the songs that got left off of Wildflowers. And it was such an unusual experience because I've recorded a lot of music with Tom and I've recorded a lot of music with a lot of people since. So the so there's enough music made where you don't remember everything unless you happen to hear it again for a reason. And in some ways, when we um when we stopped wildflowers when we finished the wildflowers project and put out the album we didn't really look back even though when we were making the album we thought it was going to be a double album and we thought all of these songs belong out you know we're proud of it all we thought it was a great a great project exciting project for us at the time so the fact that essentially half an album just got put away it just wasn't on the front of our minds. <laughs> so when he played it for me, it literally, some of the songs felt like I was hearing them for the first time, even though we were in the room together crafting them. It, um, it, it's, you know, it's been a long time and it was pretty thrilling. Like some of them, some of them uh, felt like a familiar friend that I, uh, that I haven't seen in a long time. And some of them felt like, wow, did we even do this? Like, did this happen? It was this part of the same, but, but I could tell sonically from the sound of it, that it was part of the group. Like the, 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 the sound of wildflowers is very specific in Tom's career. It's, it's a moment in time. And, um, and he was writing a particular kind of song and it was in all of this material. So when I heard it, it was like, wow, that's, I've heard the, the songs that are on the wildflowers album since then, but I haven't heard these and it's just like surreal, surreal experience. I was going to say that must've been the closest thing that you've come to be able to listen to a record that you produced and not have really like listened to it through the process, like getting a fresh set of ears over something you actually produced. I guess listening to it, like we would listen to one of your records. You don't get a chance to do that once you let it go because you've been there every step of the way. Yeah, it's it really did feel like listening to new works, unfamiliar. Again, on occasion, there'd be a, a flash would go on, like, oh yeah, I kind of remember this. And other times it was like, wow, where where was this, where did this, when did this happen? <laughs> was the is the 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 track listing that we have now between Wildflowers and all the rest, is that faithful to the document that Tom gave you than the order he wanted it in? Well, there was never a final document of what the 25 song when when it was gonna be a double album. There were sequences that we were making that were passing back and forth. And during the process of figuring out how the album was going to work was when Tom decided to make it a single album. So we never like had a firm, this is the, this is the double album sequence. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, in some ways, had we had the double album sequence and if it was firm in Tom's mind, if he would have been as open to making it a single album. In some ways, the timing of it happened exactly in the way that it was meant to be for what happened to happen. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like once you've, if we'd have edited and completed and mastered the double album, I think he might've felt weird about, oh, are we just going to take half of it away? But because it was still in the works and we're still, okay, we have all this stuff. How are we going to mold it? How is it going to be? What's the, what's the roller coaster ride that the audience gets to go on using this material? It always struck me as being an interesting decision, especially the more I got to know the record, because the album is such a personal reflection of what he's going on, what is going on with Tom at the time. And in the years to come, and maybe we'll talk about this a bit later, it became even more clear what he was really referring to in this record. Normally when an artist 
gets to a place when they're expressing themselves with that level of vulnerability, they do not want anybody to touch it start to finish. It is 50 songs if I choose it to be. And so it always struck me yes. as a little bit of a contradiction in terms of the kind of album we got that he was willing to let, as the story goes, the record label influence him to refine it and make a more narrow picture. Do you have recollections of that and, and what was going through Tom's mind when he decided to narrow the, the track listing? I don't know what was going on in his mind, but when he came in and said he decided to make it a single album based on having a conversation with the record company, I was shocked. And I was shocked, not because it was a bad decision, but it was so uncharacteristic of him. Yeah. He was uh, historically combative with any figure of authority. Notoriously. Yeah. He had warred with his old record company and ended up holding back an album from release, I think for two years over a fight about how much they want. They wanted to sell it for more than he wanted to sell it for. He wanted to sell it for what the existing price was. And then during the, during the course of making the album list price of the, you know, the main, the, the, the main event albums increased and Tom didn't want that increase. He, he felt like he wanted his fans to be able to afford the album in the way that they've been able to afford previous albums and didn't want the prices to go up. And he ended up refusing to put out his record until that was resolved, which ended up being a long time. So knowing his position and, and then through discussing this with Adria, his daughter recently, what I came to realize is he always cared about the cost to his audience. He always cared about, he always kept his ticket prices low. He, he was always into that. And then I was thinking maybe, and again, I don't know this because I wasn't part of the conversation. We never discussed it at the time. But if part of the record company's pitch to him was, you know, a double album is going to cost almost twice as much for your audience, maybe that would, that would make sense knowing who he was that would speak to him more than yeah. we think you should just put out half the songs. That would suit him. You know what's interesting as well is that this was his first record on a new label and he had just come off an acrimonious situation with the previous label. So I wonder as well yes. whether or not like, hey, look, why would I go from one really dark, really aggressive situation, choose to partner with a new label and then start a whole other tug of war? Maybe I just trust them. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And he respected them. And the reason he signed with them was because he loved Mo, Mo Austin. He loved Lenny Warnaker. He trusted them as uh, people with great taste and people who, and uh, Lenny as a, as an, as a producer. And, um, and he was friends with people who were on the label, who thought the world of Mo Austin, including George Harrison, who, who loved Mo Austin. Um, and people like Paul Simon, he, 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 Mo has a lot of love from, from people. And Mo was responsible for introducing me to Tom and getting us to work together. Wow. And Mo was right on so many levels, just in that one specific situation, let alone over the course of his incredible career, being able to speak the artist's language, because in encouraging Tom and subsequently yourself and the team that lovingly put this album together, Rick, to get it down to a single album, the album goes on to sell millions and millions of copies and ultimately established Tom in a whole new era of his life without having to chase the hit. You know, people fell in love with that album for Tom, not because it was like, here's the hit. Oh, there are hits, but it wasn't like that. And you know what I mean? Yeah, it was definitely, when we were making it, I definitely was focused on it being a body of work. It w there was never any discussion of what would be a single, ever. In the, it was never brought up once. It was just, 
are these songs good enough to hang together? That's yes. all. And they've got to start somewhere, Rick. You know, they've got to start with an album opener. And uh, it's perfect that it starts with the album title. And I, to me, that album title always felt like more than just a title. I don't know. Just when I would hear the album, I felt like Wildflowers was just so much more than just a title. It felt holistically connected to the overall experience. Does that make sense? It does. I, 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 I've come to feel that over time. At the time, I might not have known that, but but it does feel like it does feel like a moment in time. It feels like there's a specific continuity about that project that. Again, you can listen to Tom from any era and he's great, got great songs from the very beginning to the very end. And somehow the Wildflowers moment seems like a special moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not a meal you finish early. You know, you have to go through the whole experience. <laughs> so narrowing it down from 25 songs to 15. Hey, I'm Mo Austin and you trust me, right? You trust me. We need 15 songs, not 25. Yeah, I trust you, Mo. Which 10 songs do you want us to take off this project? How hard was it narrowing it down? Uh, it was difficult and probably, if I can remember correctly, all of us made lists of our must-haves and obvious first choices to remove bo- both directions. Yeah. And, um, and But eventually it was Tom's call. Like, like there, there are some songs, now listening back, like song, I can't believe a song like California didn't make it on the album. Well, I was going to say something could happen. I mean, when I press play on all yeah. the rest and I heard something could happen, to me that either starts an album or ends album. And I mean, for, that's just my instinct. It's a quintessential Tom Petty song. And it's one of the most vulnerable vocal performances I've ever heard Tom give. It almost doesn't sound like him at moments. Yeah, and the, it's also interesting if you look at the lyrics. It feels like something could happen. It's like it's it does. it's it's so like fearfully hopeful. Yeah, do you know what I totally. mean? It's like he really wants it to go good, but you can. Fi- oh, it's I've so got something in my hand that's so that's so important to me. Something could happen. Something is really important here. It feels really vague. Yeah, it's very vague, but very real. Like that's that's a real feeling. That's a real feeling. That's a real feeling. And and it comes through and you hear it in his performance. You hear his open heart, vulnerable open heart singing that song. Yeah, that one got me really emotional when I heard it <laughs> because of exactly what you're saying. It's like oh God, I need to protect this, but I feel like something good could happen here and I don't quite know which turn to take. Yeah. And that seemed to be a theme going through the record. You know, when Tom made this record, he was in his mid forties or near enough and was a, was going through what inevitably became a very tough era for him. And it, I feel like this album preempted that and you can hear it in the music. Who was Tom when you met him? Mo put you in touch. Who was he when you met him for the first time? He was, he was in a pretty good place. He was confident. He had come off of the the full moon fever experience he found it's almost like he reinvented himself yeah um and found great success again for the i guess for the second time and i think he was ready to find like he he loved all of the new uh ways of making music that he learned working with jeff and wanted to reintegrate the band, working with a band again and getting closer to getting closer to his roots of being a live performer in a band in the moment in a recording studio 
doing an interactive performance, which is what he grew up doing. Then, so his last set of successes didn't weren't done that way. They were done in a different way. So, so in some ways, Wildflowers was a return to a more comfortable way of working, but with the added benefit of all that he learned using this new method, hyper-focused on perfection and everything being spot on, being mechanically accurate, which he hadn't had before. So now, so now there was this common and working with Jeff, who's very much of a song master, Jeff and Tom together created perfect pop songs. So he came out of this focus on perfect pop songs being uh, delivered with mechanical precision yeah, and bringing that new, a new skill set back into the more relaxed, casual, loose vibe of people playing together, having fun making music. So the question then, if Tom is very clear that from his learnings, he wants to take what he's gained from the experience of working with Jeff, but this time he wants most of the heartbreakers back in the picture. He doesn't want to do it without them. So it's like, no, I want the band. So I want to bring community into this equation. And I also want to create pop songs, but I want them to mean something. In steps you. And up to this point, you've been gearing up to this moment. But if you take a look at the records you've made through the 80s and the early part of the 90s, you are very much emerging out of Def Jam through Slayer, Deaf American, into Ghetto Boys, Danzig, and so forth. And really, I feel like Tom and Johnny Cash were really the equal parts of this new experience for you to some degree. So when you're in this room, what are you hoping you can get out of this and learn from this, knowing that this is an artist who, like you just said, is so confident and kind of knows what he wants to make. Yeah, I learned so much um, because he was, Tom was a true craftsman. He had as much skill at producing music as anyone I've ever met. I think my role was just to bring a new set of ears and a different perspective from outside of his normal circle. I think that was the main, the main purpose of it was just new perspective and someone, and honestly, interestingly, someone for Tom to impress. He wanted to prove himself. I mean, he, I was already a huge fan. You know, everyone was a huge fan of Tom Petty. But I think when a new person comes in, just naturally, you have something to prove. And I think, and I know that, and I know that it changed over the course of making more albums with him where after wildflowers, I don't think he felt that anymore because we knew each other. No, it makes sense. I mean, you were running California to some degree. I'm sorry. I can say that at this point you've moved to California and you've had significant success on that side of the world, bringing California artists into the, into the global stage. And it's like, I can see how someone at that point in his life is looking around going, this is going to be a fresh set of ears, someone who can come in and really galvanize me at a moment in time when I'm probably supposed to slow down. I'm probably supposed to actually plateau. I don't, I don't, I honestly don't think he thought about that. And I, and I think the only reason we met was because Mo suggested it, not necessarily because he was a fan of my records. That's my guess. I don't know that. Yeah. I don't know that. I think he was, he was open. He was open. And when we met, we, um, there was a great camaraderie in our love of music. And when we talked about music, there was clearly a connection in that we're both, you know, obsessive lifelong fans of music. 
And it looked like fun. I mean, what I've seen of the behind the scenes footage and what was spoken about in interviews that subsequently followed the release of that record throughout the years, he spoke so fondly of the experience. And we know now that Tom hadn't always had the best experience making records because of interband politics, wrestling with producers. There was a sense that the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers made records joyous out of friction. And it sounded like this wasn't that experience. Do you have one particular story or a memory that springs to mind that, that really kind of sums up the, the joy of making this album? But one thing that I'll say that I can remember, it's sl- slightly different than what you asked, but, but, but that I remember about it. And it just sort of came to me was we, we, there was no point when we were making the album where it felt like we were working towards finishing anything. It always felt like we would show up to work every day and we were making this, these things and we would do, and it felt like it went on for years. I think it did. It could have gone on for about two years, wow. but there was no feeling of like we were aiming for the end when we were going to finish it and put it out. It was more like we're getting together on a regular basis to make music because it's really fun and the songs are flowing and we have something to do because, oh, Tom wrote a new song and now he's got three of them. Let's go into the studio, record these three, and then we can work on the overdubs on these three while he writes a new batch. And then that happens. And it felt like that went on month after month, ultimately for years until there was a point where like, wow, we have so many songs. Maybe, maybe it's time to see if we're going to put something out. But it, it was, it's funny how it wasn't like working towards an end. It, the whole thing felt like it was just fun to be in the process. This is what, this was our job was to show up every day and do this. <laughs> I just love that because, you know, at this moment, Rick, and you've always been incredibly dedicated and productive when it comes to making art, but I felt like the 80s and 90s, you was going a thousand miles an hour. So it must have been nice while you were probably working on other projects at the same time, because I know you were doing that then, to be able to come to a place that just felt calm and not in a hurry. There was no hurry and no pressure. And some days we would get together in the studio. This is after like... When we were doing basic tracks, it was fairly formal in that Tom had already written the song. Some cases he had done a demo, sometimes not. And we went in with the the band and we recorded. And that would be, let's say we would do a week of what we would call basic tracks. Sometimes it would happen in just a couple of days. And we would get, get good versions of each of those songs. That would be the basis, which is probably 80% of what you hear on the record were those live moments. And then the additional 20% would took a lot longer than getting that, that moment um, to sort of uh, flesh out the color around it and make it the most interesting record it could be. Uh, and sometimes it's very subtle. Like in the case of the, the song Wildflowers, when you, when you think of the song, typically you think of it as a solo acoustic song. It's Tom playing guitar and singing. And that's, that's, your, that's how I remember the song. In reality... If you listen to it critically, I would say at least 40 different musical events happen during that song where a harmonium makes an appearance and then the harmonium goes away and then a little shaker comes in for a verse and then it goes away and then a different percussion element comes in and then it goes away and then, and it's like things appear, disappear, change places, combine, and it's constantly evolving sonically, but never in a way 
that draws attention to itself. Your, your, your ear is always just focused on Tom singing the song. And it's almost like you rarely pay attention to the score in a movie when the dialogue's going on, although there's something happening under, underneath that's building your emotional investment in the story that's going on. Uh, it's deep. It's deep chef's work. It's deep, deep chef's work. It is like when you taste something and you just cannot for the life of you work out what is wrapped up in this, but you like how it tastes. Yeah. It seems yeah. so simple. Yeah. And, and yet it's b- the basis of it is simple, but these ever changing layers that you might not even hear, but that Something in your brain makes you want to listen to it again because there's more to figure out. It's like there's there's more going on than meets the eye, and that and that took a it took a long time. And some days, so I, the reason I got to that story was some days we would show up for at Mike Campbell's house to do our overdubs, and we would look at a song. And it's like we might spend the whole day working on one little keyboard part that only was going to be in the bridge. And it's, and you don't, you wouldn't even notice if it happened, but that might be a day and that was it. And then we would go home and it would take, you know, it might take five hours, you know, it might take five hours. People talk about this. Like it's like people often refer to the, the process of making an album over a long period of time and, and really obs- obsessing over one part for days and days. Like it's a chore. That sounds like a joy to me to be able to just find the most essential element. That's going to add the perfect amount of value. That's going to get Tom excited. That's just what a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. And try different, try different things. Like, is it this instrument or is it this instrument? Is it this part or is it this part? Is it in this octave or is it in this octave? Do we want it to be more percussive or do we want it to be more legato? Like trying all these things and just like, okay, here over the story of this song, here's an opportunity for a moment. What's, what's the most interesting moment? And then try Fill it in. Is it is it a guitar moment? Is it a keyboard moment? How's it going to work? Wildflowers and all the rest. Um, exactly how Tom Petty really wanted it to be heard in the first place. What a beautiful moment with Tom no longer around. That being the, the very sad side of this tale, but the you know the, the the uplifting side being that you're able to pull this together and share it with the world so we can we can enjoy it and embrace it. One of the songs that's on all the rest is called Somewhere Under Heaven. One of my favorites. A lot going on there. All sorts. And one of the few times I've heard Tom Petty, and this is just to my ear, I could be completely wrong, but I feel like he's really drawing. Like I feel like there's the birds in there, which we know we love, that little 12-string kind of shimmering guitar type thing. You know, there's his vocal almost leans into his love of Dylan. And then, you know, you've almost got kind of a U2-esque feel to it. I just felt like it was like, that was one of the more experimental moments on the on the all the rest section. And that's why I love it, I think because it feels like that one feels a little bit beautifully unresolved. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There were definitely pieces where like in the context of a double album, you could go further than you could go in a single album, in a single focused album. There was more, you know, the canvas is bigger and you you can take more chances. And that might've been one of the more, um, that's one of the ones that, that was less likely to make it to the single That's album. Kind of why I like but it's it. no, but <laughs> yeah, but it makes it no less beautiful yeah. and makes it no less relevant. Yeah, totally. So it just feels very fresh to me, having you know listened to Wildflowers and now listening to that. I think like, wow, what was he thinking on the day that he made that song? And it shows me the real experimental side. Is there a song on this on the single album that you recall um, whilst you were making it that really? 
either surprised you, drew you in more than the others, or even taught you more than the others taught you um, through that process of experimentation and helped you broaden your horizons on what was possible when it came to making music and helping artists realize vision? I remember the very first track that we cut for the album was a song Hard On Me. And, and we didn't know we were cutting it for the album at the time because that was Steve Ferroni's tryout. Like we, we, there was a period before we had a handful of songs and we were trying to decide who the band was going to be. And we tried out a handful of drummers that Tom liked, including Steve. And we tried out a handful of bass players, um, including people like Duck Dunn and Carol Kay, like, um, you know, classic, classic, uh, studio. And so that was a great, it was a great experiment hearing the same songs played by different people. I think we had, um, the drummer who played on the Barry White records, who was incredible. Ed Green, I think his name was, he was unbelievable. And just hearing what the different drummers brought to the table with the same material. Um, and I remember we, we, Steve came in and I think it may have been the first song we played was, was um, Hard On Me. And the version that you hear on the record was the first time that that version of the band ever played together. And in that moment, it just, and, and I liked the song in its demo form, but in the performance, it took on this whole other emotional uh, weight that I'd never heard in its acoustic form and it blew my mind. So, so I, when I listen to the album, that one strikes me in a particular way. And I don't know if it's because the power is actually in the recording or my recollection of the, what it felt like in the room and how stunning it felt in the room. So I'm, I'm a little too close to know, but it, it brings me back to the room every time I hear that. Whereas on the other, I could tell you on the opposite side, good to be King, was the only song on the record that Tom had written before I was involved. And when I came to meet him and talk about what the album was going to be, he, he played me a version of that song as what he was thinking. So I, so I feel less connected to that song than anything else on the album, although it's a beautiful song and we made it all that it could be. It feels almost like that one started before the album started, whereas all the rest came after that. Have you been able to listen to the album since it was released in 1994 at various points? I, I don't know if I've ever asked you if you even do that, if you listen to records you've worked on. I very rarely listen to anything I've worked on. I have listened to songs on the album. Of all the albums I've worked on, Wildflowers is the one that I refer to the most because if I get a new sound system or a new set of speakers, that'll be my reference. I'll, I'll listen to a couple of songs on that as a reference to understand how the system is working. Uh, because it's, it feels very ingrained in me and it's very uh, pure in the way that it sounds. It struck me once again that this was a solo album, not a Heartbreakers record. And I know that the Heartbreakers, there was some dissent within the group that they weren't involved in his first solo album and that had to be repaired. In the end, Stan, the drummer, left, the founding drummer, and Steve stepped in, as you, you know, beautifully pointed out during what became a, you know, a, a recording that will stand the test of time. What an amazing audition. Uh, I wonder if you recall why Tom decided, even with the Heartbreakers playing on this record, a fun record to make, a long record to make, a bonding record to make, where a new member was inducted into the band through the process, why it remained a Tom Petty solo record? I really don't know. That was something, we going into the album, it was something he was clear on. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't clear to me why, he never explained why, but it was 
from the beginning, he always envisioned it that way. Yeah. But yet it was clear to me that community was played a really important part just from the amount of players and people involved that he wanted to be surrounded by people this time and he wanted to open it up. Um, some really notable uh, attendees and people who contributed too, um, starting with Ringo Starr. At that moment in time, a rare appearance by Ringo Starr on somebody else's music, a very rare moment. Can you recall how that came to be and what the experience was like and what the day was like when he recorded? Yeah, I, Tom was friends with Ringo. And he invited him. I can't remember if I had met Ringo before that day, um, but it was obviously a, a mind-blowing thrill yeah. just to get to talk to him, much less to hear him play. Yeah. And he played the he played a relatively small kit and seemed to be effortlessly playing it, 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 almost delicately. And the sound that came off the drums filled the room in a way very unusual compared to the hard-hitting drummers that I was used to working with, it had a almost like a music, a musicality or a, a musical bounce that came off the skins in a different way, all having to do with his touch. Just the, the way he flicked his wrist was very specific, and the way he hit the hi-hat created a very particular familiar groove. So familiar. When you hear that song, even without realizing it, something draws you into the plane that makes you realize it's Ringo Starr. You can hear it, the shuffle. Yes. On all of the other songs on the album, um, and again, I didn't remember this so specifically because I, get, I guess it was my default mechanism, whereas for the Heartbreakers, it was more unusual. They said that I focused a lot on the drums and I spent a lot of time, to, to quote uh, Ben and Mike, said it's almost like you programmed Steve, like you really were specific about the placement of every kick and every snare and every fill. And and the, the drums were always orchestrated. And, and I assume that would make sense because coming from hip hop, that's what you do. So it's like that that would be a normal thing to do. Whereas in... You can hear it. Yeah. In, it, whereas in rock music, it's rarely done. And yet you played such a good hand, if I may say, mate, of, of programming Steve, in the words of, of, of Mike and Benmont, in a way that, that, that allowed him to, to play one of the best... It was one of the best rock drum performances across an album at that time. This is the early to mid-90s. Drummers are instructed to hit hard. If you want to, if you want to get out and about, you got to hit hard, right? That's where it's going. It's rock and roll. It's American rock and roll. That's where we're going. And the drums hit hard, and yet somehow they don't overpower the vulnerability and the touch of that album, which must have been a real challenge because they are definitely the driving force music musically in terms of sonically on this record. I mean, if you listen to some of the songs, like You Don't Know How It Feels or Honeybee, they are loud drums, Rick. They're loud. Absolutely. And again, it... It didn't seem unusual to me, and only now in talking to Ben and Mike do, am I learning that it seemed unusual to them because that was not the case normally in, in rock music. And I can say, bringing it up to today, an album that, that came out, I guess, earlier this year was a new Strokes album, and that was another album where we were really specific about the drumming. And one of the things that I feel like makes that um, makes the 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 Strokes album sound like it sounds as opposed to other Strokes albums. Still sounds like the Strokes, but one thing that's unique to this album was that Fab played it as if it was a dance album, not like it was a rock album, even though they were rock songs. And that was a really specific 
again, I didn't know that going in, but when we started working on the album very early on, it became clear. It's like, oh, if you play this more like it's a dance record and you don't do any rock drum fills, <laughs> and if you just drive it and make it danceable and mm-hmm. always think about the groove instead about building the drama, it might be interesting. And it revealed itself to play a role on, I would say, maybe the whole album. It, it might be the whole album. And what an album. What an album. I mean, that's a great album. <laughs> that's a great I'm glad you like it. I love it. I, I think they're great. Great um, guys. Yeah, me too, for sure. Carl Wilson on Honeybee. I just wonder whether that's kind of like Tom's sense of humor as well. I mean, having Carl Wilson, a Beach Boy, on the most rocking, hard riffing song on the record to some degree just tickles me a little bit. Um, another another notable guest and, a, and something that must have been another great experience for you to get that close to someone like that and to be able to record that. Absolutely. It was the first time I ever met him, Carl, and uh, he came to the studio and me, Tom, and Carl meditated before the session. And then um, Tom, and I can't remember if Tom only wanted him to sing on Honey Bee or maybe played him a couple of songs. Can't remember. But typically Tom had a pretty clear vision of what he was looking for. He may have been open to whatever parts Carl came up with, but I think in, in Tom's mind, he would have a clear vision of, I hear Carl singing on this part of this song. I want to see what he would do. And there was another song, I believe, that Lindsey Buckingham sang backup vocals. And it was the same. It's like, I imagine Lindsey's voice. Again, he, he would never suggest what parts Lindsey do. But he would have a clear idea of like that tone. What Lindsey does would work really well here. So remarkable to think that someone like Tom is coming in with a clear and distinctive vision and renowned for wanting his vision to be understood, heard, and translated. Uh, you know, some great stories and scenes in various documentaries of Tom, not literally, but verbally coming to blows over, over difference of opinion over, you know, okay, you're the producer, but guess what? I'm the producer too. Now, you're somebody who has a very clear and distinctive vision yourself and knows instinctively what feels good and feels right. That's why people want to work with you. What did you learn from working with Tom and having to defer to Tom on how to best defer to others in order to do right by the song. Does that make sense? Because he's such a strong opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll say I I always defer. I always defer to the artist. Ultimately it's their rec, their names on the front of the record. Um, I have my responsibility is to always honestly tell them everything I'm feeling. And then they decide what to do with it. In some cases, if I feel like it's going to make or break a song, I'll be more emphatic uh, but it's ra- it's rare that that's the case. And I can remember in one case on the Tom Petty song, You Wreck Me, there was a line that I thought was kind of weak. And I told him it was a song, it was a line in the hook. The last line of the hook is, uh, it's You Wreck Me, Baby. Uh, you tear me in two. You move me, honey. Or I can't remember exactly, but yes, you do. And I and I remember saying, "Wow, yes, you do" is a real cop out. And I said, <laughs> "I said you have you have four lines that are going to be repeated <sighs> to get across this point, and you're going to use <laughs> and you're going to use yes, you do." <laughs> and he and he said. Wow. He's like, you don't understand the song. Yes, you do is the best line in the whole song. Wow. He's like, that's the song. He's like, that's the song. So that's the song. That's the song. I love that story. It's, that's great. We talked a little bit about community, Rick, and it being an important part of the making of this record. And ultimately, I'd imagine what was so fun for Tom to make it, to know that he was going to a place where 
he could create a social experience and share ideas and not feel the pressure of making a record himself, even though it was a solo record. I also can't help but feel in what occurred following the divorce, the uncharacteristic descent into hard drug use that perhaps he was searching for, for family at a time when he needed it. Did you recognize during the making of this record that he was struggling in some capacity? Uh, it honestly was not clear. I think that this record, it, it felt like a happy time and it seemed like what was to come really came after this. During the making of this record, Tom was seemed to be in a great mood and, and excited about the process, engaged on a daily basis. And I didn't notice it changing. It wasn't until we got together again, I guess the next record might have been Echo, where it almost felt like it was a different person in the room. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because he's, he's talked about people referring to Echo as his divorce record, and yet he has said, you know, without me even realizing, I think Wildflowers was the divorce record. And when you listen to the songs and as they, as they unfold, you realize that he's wrestling with something that is deep within his artistic spirit that hasn't reached his, the surface yet. To not have necessarily noticed that at the time, or perhaps you did because each song is a body of work and you don't really recognize till later on, you see what he's struggling with in the years that follow. Did it, did it dawn on you then? Did the record change shape for you after the fact? Not really. I, I think because I was in the room for, you know, so much for two years, my relationship to the record is what I saw in the room. So it, it doesn't really change over time. But when you see him again later and you say it's like a very different person, how do you reckon with that? As someone who you've become close to and become a fan of, or have always been a fan of, but... It was strange. It was strange and it was not something that I was so familiar with. I hadn't spent so much time around people who got into drugs, or at least while I was around them. You know, I, I had one experience where when I first met with the Chili Peppers, there was a kind of a bad feeling in the room that I didn't understand but it turned out to be a drug issue, um, but I didn't know that. And then when I met the Chili Peppers again and decided to work together to make Californication, that was not the case. They, were, they seemed like a different band um, than the band that I had first met, I don't know, three, four years before, three or four years before. So I, it, it, was just, it was just strange and I didn't really know what to make of it. How do you work your way through that? Because as someone who doesn't do that, and as someone who has decided to find your high through spirituality and a greater curiosity and learning and to the point where you are very thoughtful and giving and sharing that knowledge, and I know that you're very keen for others to feel that, when you see somebody who's struggling and going down the opposite path and looking for coping mechanisms in order to deal with pain, but your job is to collaborate with them and work with them, it must make for a really challenging balance for you, especially someone who seeks balance all the time. Yeah, it, it was definitely odd. And the fact that he was, he was older and more experienced than me, so he was the parental figure in the room, made it just strange. Like, it, I didn't really know how to deal with it, honestly. It was just uncomfortable. And often I just remember... The sessions would just end quickly or he would try to sing and have trouble and then it wouldn't happen. And it was just like a, it was just a, a not fun time, but it wasn't clear to me what, what was happening. It just seemed, I guess there was a sense of things are out of control and I don't understand them. Only a Broken Heart, you know, one of the most amazing songs on an album called Wildflowers uh, and the rest now as well, 25 songs. 
along with a lot of other amazing outtakes and home recordings and live recordings. I mean, it is a comprehensive experience for fans of that era of Tom Petty, of which there are millions. I mean, round one, three million albums sold in America. That's even back then in the 90s, that's a certifiable hit, triple platinum done it. Now that's happening at a moment in time where Tom is at a level of maturity. And we danced around this before a little bit where people probably expect him to go away and make indulgent records based on his experience, not based on charts. Did it catch you off guard that a record you had no interest in making hit singles on that you took two years to make went on to succeed the way that it did? And if so, what did that teach you? Um, it, I definitely was surprised by its success, not because it didn't warrant it, but it wasn't clear that that's what was going to happen. And Tom's last album hadn't done as well as the album before. So he was sort of on a downward tra trajectory. Yeah. And this was a different album. And again, it was not pop singles, you know, so it really was more of a personal album. At first, I was surprised that it did as, as well as it did. And then I came, what I, what I came to realize even then was the reason it so resonates with people is that there, there's only, you know, a handful, two handfuls of cream of the crop, singer, songwriter, greatest of all time category people, the Paul Simons, the Bob Dylans, the, whoever they are, who, all of whom were still making music at that time. And if you listen to any of their work at that time, none of them were doing their best work. But Tom, who's part of that echelon, made what now people think might be one of his best albums. So I think that's, I think it's more the fact that it's unexpected for someone in that position when all of his contemporaries best work had either been long behind them or to come in the future. But, but it's almost like his generation had been written off in the mainstream. It's true. There was no room for a midlife crisis album. There just wasn't. You're either hot at the beginning or you get to a point where you become so experienced and legendary that people want to hear you again. But in the middle, it's like, there's no space here for that, at least back then. No. And even, even Bob Dylan was definitely going through a phase where people were maybe not so excited about a new Bob Dylan album. It probably wasn't until modern times that kind of the world re-engaged with Bob Dylan in a big way. Well, what's always struck me about Wildflowers is the fact that Tom Petty seemed to embrace his age rather than reject it. And I think not to be sort of generalized too heavily, but you know, as someone who's listened to a lot of music and, and followed my favorite artists through many decades, I feel like that traditionally was a time when artists are still trying to rewind the clock. And I feel like with Wildflowers, it was like, I'm 44. I'm struggling in my personal life. I'm a little bit lost. I'm not quite sure where I'm going, but this is a fun time for me. This is, none of that yeah, stuff is coming with me. But I feel like me. something could happen. I feel like something can happen. <laughs> exactly. That's, That's it. I mean, <laughs> I can leave all that other shit at the door because in here, I can just be 44-year-old Tom Petty with my friends old and new and make great music. How did making this record change your life immediately? And I know that, you know, I know you well enough to know that when I talked about the idea of this Tom Petty album and your work with the great Johnny Cash being around the time I felt like there was a new, a new era for you. And I could see you sort of processing that. But to me, maybe I'm being base, but it, it felt like these records. Were, no, no, not know, at all. You know, how did it change your life? Because all of a sudden now you weren't just Rick Rubin, the person who was the disruptor who was searching for the most exciting, strange, odd thing to throw at the masses, which worked and still does, you got a chance to slow down and to work on timeless music of a different nature. Did, it, did this album help you get to that place 
at least reputation-wise, where that was possible? I don't know. I, I'll say that it it was certainly more traditionally mainstream than probably anything I'd worked on to that to that point. So, and it was a good feeling. It felt like it felt like I was allowed to sit at the adult table for the first time. That's kind of what I'm saying. No, that's what it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden now you can kind of imagine yourself making music with anybody and you probably already could, but others, let me rephrase that. Others could imagine you making music with anybody. It was definitely a different experience and it definitely, and the, and working with Tom did open the door to Johnny Cash. I can remember discussing with Tom's like, what do you think about me doing something with Johnny Cash? He's like, you have to do it. It's like hundred percent. You have to do that because no one else would say that. That's the, other, the, the reality is, is that at the time that, that we started working with Johnny, he had already been dropped from two labels. He was thought of as very not relevant, but Tom was very enthusiastic and, and supportive and ended up playing on the second, you know, the second album we did together. That was probably the first thing that happened after Wildflowers that we worked on together was the Johnny Cash Unchained album, which was almost a continuation of Wildflowers, except Johnny Cash was the singer and the songs were often found songs. But the the camaraderie, the recording studio we recorded it in, the majority of the players, it felt like that was riding that same wave. It was part of that same movement. And it was fun for Tom to be the bass player, not to be the singer. It's like now it's like he got had all of the fun of participating like he always did with none of the pressure, zero. He was just the bass player and he loved being the bass player. It just, the whole thing unfolds for me as a fan of yours and the music you've made from this moment. It really does. All of a sudden I see the future of the band camp mentality of, of amazing players coming and going and, and leaning into the environment and the experience and not into just the band. Because it's like, okay, I'm the producer, you're the band. Play the songs, produce the songs, put the album out. I'm simplifying, but that's kind of the way it always worked. And I felt like after Wildflowers, all of a sudden it opened the door for everything. Now you've got Shangri-La and who should I call to come and play guitar on this? Who should I ask to come and play drums on this? Music is fluid and anyone can play. It's true. It's true. And the, the options are completely open and it's fun. And if it's not fun, we're doing something wrong. It's supposed to be fun. How many artists, as you've gone through life and worked with them or met them or had a chance to communicate and share time with them, have referenced Wildflowers or, or your work with Tom Petty as an inspiration or, or a hook? I would say probably, I can't tell you the number, but I would say probably more than anything else I've worked on. In terms of musicians being inspired and influenced by it, it comes up pretty regularly and still... And I would say just as much today as it did when, you know, right, right when it was new. And what are the constants that you, that you feel the commonalities of their references and what they feel from that record that ladder up to something that, that feels like a, like a commonality for what they're saying? I think that there's a reality about the album where it, it, uh, there's a believability. There's no sense of theatrics. There's no sense of performance. There's no tricks. There's no, there's, it's very, purely documentary style yeah. just what it is but what it is is immaculate for, again according to the musicians who tell me <laughs> i agree i agree 
That's why it's timeless. It is literally the perfect plate, plate of food. It's incredible. I know where you are and I'm jealous. I'm going to let you go because it's so beautiful. So I'm going to finish with one last question. <laughs> what is your fondest memory of working on this album with Tom? If you can think of one thing that really just bookmarks this whole experience for you, especially now that he's no longer here to create new memories with you, what is the thing that you really remember fondest of him? And it doesn't have to be specific, just a sense of it. Let me think for a sec. What, what comes up is he would go into character on occasion and um, almost become uh, like an old blues player. And we'd be, you know, we would be having a normal conversation and it would be Tom. And then we would talk about doing a part and he would become like... Uh, uh, okay, Mr. Rubin, I do appreciate the work. Like you just like transform into, into a different character and it'd be really fun. And it would happen at the most unexpected times. Um, so just his sort of sense of humor in the studio, it would just really make us laugh. He, he would make us laugh a lot. Well, I always appreciate seeing, you know, that professional or otherwise. It's been a really fun hour catching up with you and talking music about this album and everything else and uh, sending you nothing but love, my friend. Same, sir. I love you and I look forward to seeing you sooner than later. Wise words from a great man and the ultimate music fan, Rick Rubin, talking about Tom Petty's Wildflowers. The super deluxe edition of the album Wildflowers and all the rest is streaming now on Apple Music and we'll be back again next week with another conversation. Please feel free to leave a rating or a comment right here and subscribe to the Zane Lowe interview series. Thanks a lot.